The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. And today joining me by Zoom is Dr. Brandon Crow of Westminster Seminary. Dr. Crow, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Today we will be discussing Dr. Crow's latest book, Why Did Jesus Live a Perfect Life? The Necessity of Christ's Obedience for Our Salvation, published last year by Baker Academic. And for listeners who may not be familiar with Dr. Crow's work, he is professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he's the author of several very helpful books treating uh, New Testament biblical theology and a variety of, of themes in, uh, in the field of New Testament biblical theology. Uh, one question I like to ask the authors who come on the podcast, Dr. Crow, is what is the motivating impetus behind, uh, behind the books that we're discussing? So why did you write this particular book? This particular book, it, it really arose over the course of a number of years, uh, even going back to when I did my PhD work on Christology and the, the role and the implications of the obedience of Christ in the New Testament and what the authors of the New Testament are trying to do and how we think integratively about some of the more systematic theological categories and what the biblical texts themselves say. So I've had the opportunity over the past 10 or so years to, uh, to tease out some of these implications, of whether after my PhD work, uh, in a few essays uh, here and there, uh, and uh, and then a couple of books as well that, that relate to this theme. And so this book originally, the idea was, I thought I would just take some of what I've written and sort of collect them and dump them into a new book. Uh, but that's not as exciting probably. <laughs> so I talked to the publisher about it. They said, let's take this together and let's actually make a new book out of it. So this is not simply a gather and reprint. Uh, this is taking some of the work I've done over the past eight or 10 years and thinking about it uh, integratively and uh, uh, thinking through some of the big questions about what does the New Testament say about the obedience of Christ. And you can see it in the title, Why Did Jesus Live a Perfect Life? And the point is uh, we are saved by his obedience. So it relates to issues like justification, how we understand the law of God, how we read the gospels. And then towards the end of the book, I get into some of the more uh, practical aspects that I haven't really covered before. And uh, that really is the relationship between justification and sanctification and how we ought to think about our lives under God's law in light of Christ perfectly obeying the law. And so that, that's a brief snapshot of how we got there. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. And who is your intended audience for this book? Is it, it's, it's published under the academic imprint for Baker, but is this strictly limited to uh, seminarians, uh, Bible college students and their professors, or is, does it have a broader audience in mind? Uh, this book probably has a broader audience in mind, and uh, it's published with the academic imprint of Baker, but it's not written nearly as much for an academic audience. I, I explain terms. Each story, uh, each chapter opens with a story, for example, so and that's not quite as academically rigorous. Uh, it's more of a—it uh, would be suitable for really anyone interested in these questions. Uh, someone without training uh, could pick this book up and, and learn from it, I think, but also— those who are in seminary or in college or maybe post-college, uh, post-seminary, who are wrestling with some of these questions, 
I do my best to put my finger on some of the issues and saying, let, let's let's ask some key questions here. Uh, so those who have wrestled with the new perspective on Paul, those who have wrestled with some of the debates about the nature of salvation and the nature of faith, uh, those who maybe have encountered some of the books about uh, redefining uh, not just justification, but our understanding of salvation uh, and the role of our works in salvation. And so really, there, there's one key question that I'm bringing to the fore in this book, and that is, uh, is perfect obedience necessary to inherit eternal life? Uh, and in many ways, that's the question that I'm coming at in every chapter. And if the answer is yes, then our works cannot be part of the foundation of our justification. Uh, but if the answer is no, then it opens up some different avenues. Uh, my answer is yes, we, we are required to be perfectly obedient, uh, which is why Christ's perfect obedience is so necessary uh, for justification in particular, but uh, it relates to sanctification and some of these other concepts from theological discourse as well uh, that readers may have come across in systematic classes and so forth. So I really want to make sure our listeners got that, that the big question that you're seeking to address in this book is, um, is perfect obedience to God's law necessary to inherit eternal life is, or to secure inter- eternal life? Would that is, that's the big question there. And as you are seeking Scripture's answer to this question through uh, in-depth exegesis and the weaving together of different biblical theological themes in Old and New Testaments, what other answers ancient or modern, do you address or respond to in this book? You mentioned the new perspectives on Paul uh, just briefly. Uh, do you want to comment a bit more on, on some alternatives uh, that, that you identify in the book and are seeking to maybe challenge or, or even confront? Yeah, so I, I would say maybe two broad categories. One is the, the issues that are raised by the new perspective, or you put it plural, that's fine, new perspectives on Paul. Uh, which addresses things like how do the New Testament writers, Paul in particular, how does Paul uh, understand the law of God? And and traditionally, in a lot of theological circles, the law of God requires perfect obedience. And the Mosaic law in particular uh, is seen to require this in some way. And yet for the new perspective authors, they often challenge that and and don't think that's the case. So for the related issues to that school of thought, uh, it, it raises questions about how do we understand the, the Mosaic law? Does it require perfect obedience? I have a whole chapter on that. Um, how do we understand, for example, Galatians 3 and the use of Leviticus 18.5, uh, he who does these things will live by them. So there's a, a fairly long section on Galatians 3 and the law of God. That passage comes up also in Romans 10, so I discuss it there. But also to understand the law of God, you can't just start with Moses, and that's Unfortunately, where a lot of people start, you got to go back earlier to creation and uh, the the Adamic basis for the law of God. And so before you get to Moses, I have a, a chapter on Adam and how we understand the foundational role of Adam. And it's not entire, uh, intended to be speculative, but exegetical as you look at Romans 5. And so at Romans 5, 12 to 21, uh, it considers the role of Adam's disobedience in contrast and comparison to Christ's obedience. And, and so, so that's one category of question. It's the new perspective on Paul. Another category are some more contemporary writings uh, that are dealing with the nature of things like faith and salvation, and perhaps assuming some of the groundwork laid by the new perspective on Paul. Uh, there have been arguments, for example, that faith means uh, 
uh, our allegiance to God. Faith should be re uh, constituted or re-understood as our work. And this really is an older problem uh, that the post-reformed took on with the Socinian movement. And that's a term that uh, many readers may not be familiar with, but the Socinians uh, were uh, well-known opponents to some of the reformed and post-reformed authors. And some of the arguments that you encounter today have been addressed, I think, from the history of interpretation. So I do look backwards a little bit in the history of interpretation uh, throughout uh, various aspects of the book uh, to see what people have said in the past about this. And uh, so I want to argue that faith is not a work. Faith is an instrument that does not add anything to what Christ has done, but rests and relies on Christ alone. And this explains, for example, why the term imputation of Christ's righteousness has been, uh, though it's been challenged, it has been a time-tested way to speak of Christ's work for us. I think we should reserve, uh, retain that term and, and preserve that insight that uh, by speaking of Christ's obedience for us, there's nothing we can add to it because it is perfect. And so faith must be the instrument by which we benefit from what Christ has done. So uh, that's a, a long-winded answer, but two categories there of, of answers, uh, of issues that readers may have come across. No, that's very helpful. And, and I apologize for pluralizing perspective, making perspectives, but the diversity of the movement almost warrants doing that, as you yeah, point sir. out in the book, too. But that's that just my slip up. Um, Dr. Crow, you're a biblical theologian, and this book deals heavily in the areas of exegesis and biblical theology, appropriately so. Um, but you already hinted that you do engage with the uh, history of interpretation. And so open that up for us a bit more. How do you, how do you bring in insights from historical theology and systematic theology to, to make your case not only that, uh, that perfect obedience is necessary to inherit eternal life, but that it's Christ's perfect obedience alone uh, received through the instrument of faith that then secures the believer's justification before God? Uh, one of the things I try to do uh, is to break down supposed barriers between historical theology and, and exegetical theology. And uh, for whatever reason, those barriers or those dichotomies have emerged over the years. Uh, that's another conversation. But uh, if you read historical theology, I'm thinking of people like Calvin, uh, Francis Turretin, even someone that's more contemporary like Herman Bovink or Gerhardus Voss, uh, people who have done both exegetical work and more integrative systematic theological work, um, I think there may be this uh, this aura that they're speculative theologians uh, when you're reading systematic theology. Uh, but I think that's uh, that's more myth than reality, because what they're often doing is simply asking exegetical questions and seeking to give thorough exegetical answers. And so when I'm looking exegetically, I'm trying to pull in any help I can find from church tradition that helps me answer some of these exegetical questions. And I have found often that some of the Someone like Francis Turretin, and I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Turretin, but he's, you know, the late 1600s, and uh, he has this method which is very, uh, very precise, asks a lot of questions. It's in English, so it's, it's easily accessible, uh, and he'll go through qu issues, you know, what about this? Here are arguments in favor of this, but these are the problems with that, and so the answer is, is, is otherwise. And so, for example, in the chapter on Romans 5, uh, what do we understand by the one act of obedience and, and the one act of disobedience and things like this that compares and contrasts Christ and, uh, and Adam? Well, uh, modern commentaries are very helpful, and you can find a lot of, of good help from good commentaries. But I find it's also helpful 
to see some of the objection to some of the positions that people had today already answered 400 years ago. And it's really amazing how contemporary the discussions are. And so Turretin, for example, has a long discussion, one that I interact with in the book. It's really helpful on why Romans 5 cannot be speaking just about one isolated act of Christ for us. Uh, Calvin has a similar discussion. Uh, and pushing it all the way back to the second century, uh, an early church writing known as the Epistle to Diognetus, it, it echoes Romans 5 in the way it speaks about the entire righteousness of the Son given for those whom he came to save who were unrighteous. So there really is a, a number of places you can look in the history of interpretation to help you with some of the more contemporary debates. And it's sometimes surprising how some of the arguments that are still being made have already been known and addressed many years earlier. And they're not always right, of course, but I find that quite frequently I find a lot of help in some of the earlier you know, two or three, four hundred years ago authors uh, who have addressed some of the same exegetical questions. And sometimes they even raise other exegetical points that I have not even seen and ask other questions that are not part of the current conversation. So having it's like going to a foreign country. And maybe you've heard church history explained this way. Uh, if you go to a foreign country, uh, you get another perspective on where you are. Uh, and uh, church history has been explained like a foreign country. By, by visiting church history, as it were, you begin to see your own situation with some new eyes. And so I think it's helpful for contemporary exegetes uh, to take a step back and look uh, more broadly at, at what has been said in the past, and maybe we'll find some help there. You know, a, a little anecdote just from my own personal experience is I've launched into a preaching series through the Gospel of Matthew. I've made it a point that um, while most of my commentaries that I'm reading are from the modern period, you know, broadly defined, including Calvin in the modern period. And you know, I always look at Matthew Henry and, and Matthew Poole towards the end of my sermon prep, but, you know, looking at RT France and, and, and I, I really like Lenski's commentaries, even though he wasn't a Calvinist, very helpful. But I, I also make it a point to refer to ancient sources and reading through uh, Chrysostom's homilies in Matthew has been not just instructive for my preaching, but also very devotional, but eye-opening, because he's making applications to his flock there. I think he's preaching in, in Antioch, though he might be in Constantinople in those homilies. I, I forget off the top of my head, but he, you know, he rails against the, the problem of cursing or going to the theater, and obviously not applications that, that are the first to come to my mind as I'm working through the early chapters of Matthew. But it's interesting to see how the concerns of the ancients differ from ours and, and sometimes bring insight into the text and other times perhaps don't offer a whole lot of useful insight. Um, but I think it's an important practice and, and one that we need to engage in to combat chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis called it. So I, I appreciate you bringing that out for us. Now, getting into the book itself, the, the book's divided into three parts. You've already kind of laid this out for us. Uh, the three parts, the titles are Definitions, Exegesis, and Implications. In the first part on definitions, uh, for our listeners' benefit here, you lay out the theological vocabulary, the what that you are handling in this, in this book. And then in the second part, you turn to several passages of the New Testament to paint a high-level picture of Christ's perfect obedience in relation to our salvation. And of course, drawing from the Old Testament, particularly how the New Testament uses the Old Testament in exploring these themes. And then in the third and final part, you then turn to the practical implications of your exegetical work. Um, I think that's a fair representation of the book's outline or plan, and especially as you've described it for us here. But as we, as we consider these three parts, starting with definitions, 
what are the key terms? And you've already brought some of them in, faith, obedience, righteousness, justification, sanctification. But uh, what are the, the key terms, especially those that you highlight in the book, that we need to understand rightly as we get into this discussion of Christ's work in salvation? Yeah, I think two things that, that uh, come to mind here. One are the active and passive obedience of Christ, and another is maybe the difference between something like imputation and impartation of righteousness. So on the active and passive obedience of Christ, uh, if this term is familiar uh, to your listeners or to those who have done some reading, uh, it's interesting that not everyone agrees on how these terms should be used. But I think the best way to use the term is active obedience is often thought to be, for example, Christ's life, and then the passive obedience is his death. That's sort of a simple uh, active passive obedience 101 uh, common understanding. And I mean, it, it makes sense why that is so, but it needs more nuance than that. And so I think a better understanding here is not to divide the obedience of Christ into stages. So stage one is active obedience. Stage two is passive obedience. Instead, it's to think of active and passive as two aspects of the unified, integrated, lifelong obedience of Christ. Passive doesn't mean he was passive in the way we think of it in English, but it's the Latin patior, to suffer. And so we're talking about his active requirement, doing what God commands, and we're talking about his suffering for the law, uh, for the, the consequences of sin and, uh, that the law sets forth for breaking the law, uh, and that is what we deserve. So uh, you have Christ actively doing what God requires and suffering the penalty for sin, on the cross, certainly you see the passive obedience most um, uh, starkly. But whenever he is, uh, some writers have put it this way, the blood from the circumcision is just as atoning as the blood on the cross because it's all part of one single unified integrated work of Christ. So the active obedience doesn't stop before you get to the cross. It's difficult to know how that would, where, where would you draw the line? And you don't want to say that the cross was not active. And so it's better to understand active and passive obedience as always coinciding in the lifelong obedience of Christ to what two angles on the lifelong obedience. And the second is some uh, terms that have often been debated, uh, imputation, impartation of righteousness. Impartation, uh, or maybe transfusion of righteousness or transformational understanding of justification, says that uh, our righteousness by the grace of God, becomes part of the equation for our justification, something like that. Uh, imputation, which I think it, it better uh, accords with the biblical witness and the perfect obedience of Christ, says, well, justification, that is inheriting eternal life, requires perfect obedience. So our justification cannot be part, sorry, our righteousness cannot be part of that justification. Christ's ju uh, obedience is perfect. How do we benefit from that? without adding to it. His righteousness must be credited to us as though we did it uh, legally. This is a, a constituted righteous is the way Romans 5 puts it. And that is a, a legal reckoning, and not because we have done it, but because we are in Christ. And so, I, I, and parenthetically, I don't see any kind of dichotomy between union with Christ and imputation. Both are necessary. Um, and so what you have then is a, uh, is a term imputation that we that also speaks to the nature of faith, which is not a work, but something we, we, uh, we are instrumentally benefiting, uh, using as, as a benefit to, to uh, benefit from Christ and righteousness, if that came out right. I think I said that right. So uh, <laughs> imputation means 
that we don't add anything to the righteousness of Christ or his obedience, basically interchangeable terms. Uh, whereas the Roman Catholic view and the view of some Protestants uh, in recent years is that uh, righteousness becomes ours practically in justification. Now, this is, I would say, uh, to confuse justification, which does not take into account our righteousness, and sanctification, which does. Uh, and so the the last full chapter of the book, I get into that. What's the difference between justification and sanctification? Uh, but that's not until the end of the book, after hopefully I've made a, a case uh, that I hope is compelling, that we can add nothing to what Christ has done for us. That's very helpful. And, you know, you see these these terms either redefined or even dismissed or the distinctions um, dismissed in, in a variety of what in our denomination, because you're, you're in the Presbyterian Church in America as well, right, Dr. Crow? Our denomination, as well as others like the OPC, the ARP, have, um, have, have identified as errant theologies like the Federal Vision, which denies any uh, sense that Christ's, uh, that our justification is founded upon the active obedience or righteousness of Christ, that we're saved not by merit, but rather by maturity uh, and faithfulness uh, rather than through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I've discussed that on the past on this on this podcast and 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 gone into some depth with uh, with another guest on how the new perspective on Paul influences the federal vision and on these very issues that you're treating in your book. And that's one reason why this book appealed to me. Moving into the second part of the book, which is really the the meat of of your volume here, it's where you bring to fore some careful exegetical study into five big concerns in New Testament biblical theology. And I don't think we have time on this podcast, nor is it advisable for us to go through each one in depth. I'm not going to do that to you, but I also want our folks listening to pick up the book and read for themselves. But there are a couple things I wanted to highlight. And you've already talked a bit about chapter three, where you take a close look at Romans five and the relationship between Christ's life and Adam's life and the contrast between the two. And so one issue that, that you do bring out quite a bit is the importance of believing in an historical Adam. Why is it important that we believe that Adam uh, was a real person, a, a, a man, you know, by whom we're all, or from whom we're all descended, who actually lived at, at, at a point in history, namely the beginning, and does the theological argument made in Romans 5, would it hold up if the historical reality of Adam is denied? You know, I recognize this is a controversial point. Um, but yes, we must believe in a historical Adam. And the simple reason is because if Scripture is our guide, Scripture clearly teaches a historical Adam. And you might think, well, Romans 5 doesn't require it. Well, as you said, it does require it. But let's uh, put a pause on that just for a moment. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches a historical Adam. Uh, Genesis 5 uh, teaches historical Adam. First Chronicles teaches historical Adam. Uh, the book of Jude, the book of Luke, First uh, Corinthians, First Timothy. Romans 5, and the implications as well, allusions to Adam are everywhere. So it's not as though there's like one vague passage. The Bible is really clear on this. This is, um, if you believe in the authority of Scripture and the perspicuity of Scripture, there's really no wiggle room on this, uh, that there's a historical Adam. He was a real person. Uh, and um, and we all trace our the unity of the human race, the unity of, of the human dilemma of sin, the unity in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the unity of the solution is to the, the race that fell in Adam that is redeemed in Christ. 
And so, yes, I recognize there are debates on this, but I think scripture is exceptionally clear on this. Uh, And I don't know how often Jude is part of this conversation, for example, but it needs to be, or Luke's genealogy, Uh, Luke 3.38, son of Adam, son of God. Uh, These are all claims to Adam's historicity. 1 Corinthians 15 is a big one, so is Romans 5. Okay, so uh, Romans 5. Uh, It explains the reality of the unity of the human dilemma of sin and sin spreading to everyone, and it explains the unity of the answer in Christ. Uh, It's very similar to 1 Corinthians 15 in many respects. Uh, But Romans 5 speaks about the reality of sin and death that affects every person and the reality of reigning through Christ. Uh, This is not just an illustration. This is a a statement about here's the way the world works and here's why it works this way. Uh, You have uh, the older, who was it, Uh, maybe Thomas Goodwin, who says that uh, all people are hanging from the belt of either Adam or Christ. And that's what Romans 5 is about. And uh, the, the, I guess I could just leave it there. I, I don't know. I mean, we could have a longer conversation about historical Adam, uh, but I think the scriptures are perspicuous on this uh, and consistent on this. Uh, and the theological points that are tethered to it just up the ante. And uh, for Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, the theological points that are tethered to this, 1 Timothy 2, uh, the, the theological points tethered to this, uh, just reinforce the reality that Adam is the first person. Indeed, indeed. Well, it's it's not contested here at Greenville Seminary, but especially with the recent uh, publication of another work by William Lane Craig diving into this issue, it's certainly become a flashpoint again, uh, especially since he wrote a headline article for First Things, kind of questioning the historicity of Adam and 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 in my in my view, trotting out some old and tired arguments that have been han, you know handled in in the past by the likes of William Van Dudeward and and, and others who have written on this uh, subject, even up to a book length uh, treatment as well. Um, but having established that the historicity of Adam is very important, <laughs> the theology that we're discussing, um, what kind of obedience did God require of Adam in the garden? And, um, and how does that relate then to uh, your work here in Romans 5? Yeah, so you, you've got, uh, to really answer that question, I, I think you, you've got to look beyond Romans 5 and think more integratively. And this is where I think the wisdom, not just of uh, older systematic theologies, but of creeds and confessions are really helpful. And, um, and so what was Adam required to do? Uh, well, the answer in the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is entire, perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. Uh, and that means Adam had to keep the entire law of God perfectly. Now, that, to get there, uh, you need to understand, uh, I would say, more than Romans 5. The text, like in the next chapter, I believe it's the next chapter, is on Leviticus 18.5. He who does these things will live by them. That's given in the context of the law of Moses, which is, I would say, part of the covenant of grace. And yet attest the principle that has been true from the days of Adam, that uh, to, to have perfect life requires perfect obedience. And so you have in, uh, in Reformed understandings, as you look at the Ten Commandments, for example, the Ten Commandments are what were written on, on Adam's heart. And so the, the law of God uh, did not just come to Israel for the first time at Sinai. Because look at Abraham. He already knew uh, what, what God required. Pharaoh knew not to take someone else's wife, for example, in Genesis 12. And so you've got, uh, you've got the law of God written on the heart of humanity. And 
I think it was a, I think Scott Swain in his essay in the Covenant Theology volume that was produced by RTS, I think he makes it there the point that the law of God is not just, uh, it, I forget what he says it's not, but it's, it's um, anthropological, meaning it's built into the, the, uh, the heart of humanity from the beginning. And so Adam uh, is called to reflect the character of God, to be holy. Uh, Genesis 2.17, for example, uh, he's not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and the day he does that, he will die. The implication of those texts is that if he listens to what God says, if he's fruitful and multiplies, if he obeys God's law, that he wouldn't die, but he would live uh, eschatologically, that there would be Reformed theology teaches an increase in the experience of life for Adam. So you have in the creeds of the Reformed tradition this understanding, uh, and it, it helpfully reflects, I think, the principles that you see in Genesis 2, Genesis 3, um, texts like Leviticus 18 in the context not just of Leviticus, but also of texts like Ezekiel 20, uh, Galatians 3, Romans 10. Uh, you see it also in the eschatological goal where in the new creation we will be free from sin. And so the goal is that we would listen to God's law and walk in those ways. Now, back to Romans 5, and back to Romans 5, you see by one act of disobedience, life was forfeited. So that's one way you see it there. Uh, and then it says by the uh, one act of obedience, we are, you know, we are justified. We are made right. We, we reign. We have, uh, now, misquoting there just a little bit, but that's Romans 5, 18 and 19 in particular. But what's interesting is whereas scholars often get wrapped up with what is the one act of obedience. I'm not sure that's what the text says. I think it says the obedience of one man, because that refrain is throughout the entire passage, the obedience of the one, the disobedience of the one. And then you come to, and I always forget is 18 or 19. And you come to 18 or 19 and it says through one act of obedience, I think it's verse 18. And I don't think that's the right read. I think that's just throwing us off a little bit. I think the better translation is, through the obedience of the one man, which better accords with the context of the passage. And so instead of trying to figure out what one thing did Christ do uh, that saved us, a lot of people say it's the cross. Well, it's better to see that as the integrated obedience of Christ uh, that answers the one act of disobedience of Adam. So by one act of disobedience, uh, we were thrust into um, uh, judgment, whereas by one act of obedience or the obedience, the obedience of one man, and we reign uh, through life. Uh, we, we reign unto life in Christ. That uh, is uh, that is more than what Adam failed to do. As Turretin says, uh, eternal life doesn't require just one thing. So let's not try to find one thing Jesus did. Instead, it is an integrated unity that, that is what he has done. So I hope that comes out okay. Maybe it's clear in the book. Oh yeah, no, no, that that was perfect. Exactly how you how you laid all that out for us, and and I think that it's it's supported by Christ's own statements and certainly by his life. I mean, when he goes for his baptism, I just preached on this a few weeks ago. When he goes for his baptism in Matthew chapter three, what does he say in three fifteen? He says to John, who's offering some resistance, some what I would say reasonable resistance, because John doesn't know what, what exactly Christ is doing. But Jesus says, "Permit it at this time." Why? For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
And so it's not merely one act of righteousness, but it's all righteousness, generically speaking. His whole life is colored by this perfect obedience and righteousness. And, and that's upon that grounds, I think we found our hope. Christ didn't beam down as a 30-year-old man, go to a cross, and then beam back up. Um, no, it, we're given four accounts of his life, um, with, the, with the exception of, of Mark jumping right into his public ministry, but especially Matthew and Luke being as as comprehensive as they are, going from infancy to death through to resurrection. Um, and, you know, there's a reason why we're given all of that data, because he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets in, in, in all of his life. And so I, I, think, um, I think your defense of, of that translation change there in Romans 5.18 makes perfect sense. It at least accords with Scripture um, without looking at some of the more uh, exegetical bases of that move myself. I I would certainly plant my flag behind you, Dr. Crow, for what it's worth. Um, our next question. Well, and, and just, just to wrap that up. If yeah, I could, go ahead. It doesn't, whatever your translation you go with on Romans 5.18, it's not, it's not going to determine yeah, no, what no, no. Find the argument. But, but yeah. I think it just is one more reason uh, that, that helps support the, the argument I'm making. Yeah, certainly. I, that change is not going to materially affect uh, the doctrine, but it, it is, it's, it's going to lend support. Uh, I think one more reason, like you said, um, you have, I, as I mentioned, five chapters in this part, uh, the first chapter dealing with Romans five, the last chapter, then looking at the resurrection in chapter, uh, seven of, uh, of part two here on exegesis. And the questions that I wanted to ask you that I know you address in the book, what does the resurrection prove about Jesus and his life? Or put another way, why is this important for understanding our salvation? Yeah. So, so the resurrection in brief it's the proof, the vindication uh, that Jesus did this and lived. It's that he fulfilled Leviticus 18.5, uh, that there was no claim of sin on him, because even though he, he suffered the penalty for sin, the fact that he rose from the dead, one of the things that shows us is that he was vindicated from an unjust death. And if you think, if you think about it, if the Gospels, for example, ended with the death of Christ, that would be a very bad ending, <laughs> because Jesus would have been bested, uh, the uh, the religious leaders would have had their day. Uh, his message of rising from the dead would have been false. Uh, his kingdom reigning forever would not be uh, coming to fruition. So it makes a huge difference whether or not Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, even Mark, by the way, which you know may or may not include a, a resurrection appearance of Christ, Jesus predicts it three times, and the angels say uh, the tomb is empty because he has risen from the dead. So there's no question what happens in Mark. He rose from the dead. So the resurrection, a text like 1 Timothy 3.16 is helpful here. Richard Gaffin has done a lot of work on this um, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And that is, uh, he was vindicated in his resurrection or justified from death. He might even say that our justification rests upon Christ being justified from death. Uh, he did not, death did not have a claim on Christ. He submitted to it as a representative. But because he was sinless, uh, you can see that in the victory in his resurrection as the holy and righteous one. And this is part of the message in Acts, where Jesus is identified as the holy and righteous one. Max is right up with Luke 23. Uh, Truly, this man was righteous, as he says at the cross, the centurion says. And in and, uh, the book of Acts, the resurrection is front and center in the apostolic preaching. Uh, and they're pointing to the fact that Christ is who he said he was, that he reigns over the world because he not only rose from the dead, but ascended into heaven and rules over the world from heaven over the restored Davidic kingdom. So the resurrection is the vindication of Christ's message in person and work and shows us that 
Uh, sin had no claim on him, but he defeated sin through his death. And that's why the resurrection is so um, central to the preaching in the New Testament. And it really it, it sort of boggles my mind. But maybe you've heard it. Uh, people say this, that, well, I believe that Jesus died for our sins, but the resurrection is just a spiritual reality. Uh, the New Testament does not make sense <laughs> if you think the resurrection is just a spiritual idea. Uh, and, and I've heard it said, you know, I've seen documentaries and think where they say this, but uh, basically no book of the New Testament would make sense if you had that view. So I'll just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was well put. No book of the New Testament would make sense if you held that view. Um, moving into the third part now of the book is we're just giving our listeners a, a taste of, of what I think is a very helpful and significant volume. As we consider the practical implications of your sustained examination of Christ's obedience and our salvation, one big question that I've faced in just the short time that I've been an ordained minister is this. What is the role of our works in light of Christ's obedience? If Christ has perfectly obeyed all that is required by the law of God and that obedience is imputed to us and received through faith alone, which is not an act but an instrument, then must we obey? And do we need to do anything in particular as followers or as disciples of Christ? If we do, what and and why? And the short answer is, yes, our obedience is necessary, but it's not foundational to our justification. And this is where it's really difficult uh, to tease this out. And this is where I think the, the post-Reformed dogmaticians have done this really well. And a lot of the, the larger catechism, the, uh, the, the Westminster Standards, I think, do this really well. So here are two problems. On the one hand, you have the issue of antinomianism that is dismissing or downplaying the law of God. And it seems like uh, if you have free grace of justification, then it doesn't matter what you do. But that's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Uh, because look at Romans 6. Paul expressly counters that view. Uh, and then you have the other view that is uh, more like legalism that says, well, therefore, we, we can add something to what Christ has done. But there's nothing that we could add to what Christ has done. But, but this is why you can see the logic for why you have an antinomian position where people say it doesn't matter. I can see the logic for why people have it. The problem is it's explicitly contradicted by the scriptures. I can also see the logic for why people say, well, your actions add something to justification. The reason they would say that is because the Bible makes it clear that our actions, our discipleship is necessary. And so you, you can see why that side of the debate might uh, – sort of remove the distinction between what we would call justification and sanctification. But the problem is that question at the beginning, does the Bible teach that perfect obedience is necessary for justification? And if the answer is yes, then however, in whatever way our obedience is necessary, it's not the foundation for our justification. And this is what is so difficult to articulate, but is imperative that we articulate it well. And that is, uh, we can think about the indicative and imperative concepts here. The indicative is what God has done for us in Christ. We don't add anything to that. The imperative is what we are to do as disciples. We, therefore, have to obey the commands uh, by the power of God's Spirit, by grace. And it seems like you can have one without the other, but the Bible also teaches that they are inseparable. And so this is where the logical distinction between justification and sanctification is so important. Uh, where we keep both together. You cannot separate them. 
Our good works are necessary, but they are not the foundation of our justification. That's the best way to articulate this. So that means, yes, we still must obey the law of God. We must grow in holiness. Uh, Paul is clear he has these vice lists for people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those are not purely hypothetical. They're real. And yet we also know that grace is free and real as well. And so there's got to be some way to say both. And this is where the traditional and I think most compelling view is the distinction between justification, what we receive by faith alone through Christ's work, and, and um, sanctification, which is uh, what we bring to the table as disciples. It, that includes our effort. It includes our use of the means of grace. It includes our making choices as disciples to follow Christ. Both of those are necessary, but they cannot be confused because that's where the problems come in. And I do my best to help. I think it's chapter, uh, maybe chapter nine. I chapter, the chapter nine, number. Yeah. Um, and I do my best to help readers think through the implications of this. And really, I'm not breaking new ground here as much as I am trying to recover where I think this has been done well and explaining uh, the distinctions that have been made in the Reformed world. Where I, I think one of the reasons that I'm compelled, um, I find Reformed theology compelling is this is one of the areas that it, it does better than any other tradition I've seen. It maintains uh, tight distinctions, but also, I think, promotes a healthy understanding of the interconnectedness and interrelatedness of these features of our salvation, or if features is the best word, I don't know, aspects of our salvation, of Christ's work, uh, both for us in his person um, as God-man, but also in us by his spirit working holiness in us through sanctification. And so um, I, I really appreciate how, how you broke that down for us and tying it together to that thoroughgoing exegesis in part two is so important and I think really brings a lot of value in this book. Uh, Dr. Crow, do you have any concluding remarks or comments you'd like to share with our listeners today? Uh, listeners whom, again, I really hope become readers of this book and, and of your other books. Well, I think maybe I, I would just say to follow up with the first comment, uh, I, I, this is a book that not every book is this way, but this book, I think, has the potential to reach a lot of different people wherever you are. For those coming to this for the first time, I hope it will be helpful. But for those who have been wrestling with this, even at the graduate level, uh, this is my attempt to sort of simplify it and break some of the complex questions down uh, and, and maybe bring some clarity to issues that I know I, in the past that I found to be unclear and I had to wrestle through as I was you know, in seminary and PhD work and, and wrestling with some of these things. Um, but it, it is a, a book that I think is fairly straightforward and easy to read, but one that you can jump around in if you want to, uh, or you could read all the way through. But uh, it does have a wide range of readership and view. And uh, so uh, if you're, if it sounds simple, I hope it will be helpful for you to clarify things. If it sounds complex, uh, I hope it will be fairly simple for you to read it if you wanted to pick it up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very easy to read. You're you're an able writer, and I appreciate clear writing. Uh, whenever wherever I see it, um, especially for pastors, I would I would commend this book to you as something of a resource book, but also for the specific texts that Doctor Crow treats. We've mentioned Romans five, also mentioned. Um, uh, the use of Leviticus 18.5 in the New Testament, going to Luke 10, Romans 10, Galatians 3. Uh, he also treats here um, 
kind of a, a big picture of the Gospels and the life of Christ. So if you're preparing to preach through any of the Gospels, this would be a helpful book, particularly chapter 5. And then chapter 6 deals with Hebrews and looking at how Hebrews uses Psalm 40 in chapter 10, but also other other um, key issues in the book of Hebrews. And then finally, uh, we talked about the resurrection, uh, but also in, in chapter... Uh, in chapter seven, there specifically looking at the Gospels, Acts, and Paul's letters. And so, if you're if you're going to be tackling, you know, one of those passages that I mentioned, this would be a helpful book to have on the shelf. It's not an expensive book. It's not like a fifty dollar commentary. In fact, uh, I did want to point this out to our listeners today. Um, this book, Why Did Jesus Live a Perfect Life? The Necessity of Christ's Obedience for Our Salvation from Baker Academic by Dr. Brandon D. Crow is available wherever books are sold. It lists for $22.99, but it's available right now at a, a very reasonable 30% discount at 16 bucks from bakerbookhouse.com. So the publisher wanted me to, to mention that or suggested that I mention that because that's a great deal on this book. And looking around, poking around on Amazon, Reformation, Heritage Books, WTS Books, I see generally you can get it for 15 or 20 bucks somewhere in that ballpark. So $16 direct from Baker is a great deal. Uh, again, Dr. Crow is professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I really appreciate you coming on Confessing Our Hope today, Dr. Crow. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.